Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, well, well. Here we are again. Eventually. Quite appropriately. I think we are suitably starved for a delicious word sandwich, now that we have withered away so that we be spoopy skeletons for much belated Halloweenish times. Yes, this is meant to come around Halloween. Ghoulish greetings, my dear Kiotis. Welcome back to Delicious Word Sandwich. Believe it or not, tis I, your ye oldy pal, old Maddie. And I have found myself in yet another diabolical pickle. This time, however, the pickle has wings, and a tail, and a propeller that apparently is inedible, I have discovered. Though I shall try again when not in mid-flight and my mouth stops bleeding. Where thusly we shall consume this whole damn plane, and a new delicious word sandwich. For those of you freshly joining me on my old Matty adventures in this wee cockpit, get the hell out of here, because I am trying to fly a plane and this is a solo flight. So quit your smooching and start scooching, you Princess La Brea tar pits. A lot of pits there. It is curious how the word pit makes things exceptional, no? Like Brad, or like tar from La Brea. Well, that's just tar. But put in a pit and you've got a national attraction, my friend. And think about cockpit. Well, don't actually. I need that not-explicit rating for when Disney buys me out, after I start chewing through their literary foundations such as Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland, like a termite Looney Tune. There's some funny-tasting food for thought. Also, Han Solo rarely flies alone, so one wonders what it is he does so famously solo. Actually, stop wondering. Stop. That's enough of that Daffy Duck talk. Let's hit the books. But gently. Respect your local bookstore, kiddiewinks. But by Zeus, stop winking at me. Where the hell was I? Ah yes, there I was, old Matty Island. As I mentioned last time, invited Halloween early and became a nightmare before I even had a chance to sleep. Riddled with treacherous tribes, even more treasonous friends like Robinson Crusoe, and of course, my all too enduring arch nemesis, Jim Pawsby, the gun-toting, unicycling, Schmidt flying bear. I was shanghaied from my own island, out of the frying pan and into the firing squad, so to speak, when I was taken away to the island of Pianosa, and trained as a bombardier in World War II, with my newest best bud, Captain Yo-Yo Yossarian. The enemy planes were the least of old Maddie's troubles, however, even the one piloted by a pickle harp wearing Jim Pawsby. Instead, my real troubles were bashing my head against the bureaucracy of Cash-22 till I expunged juices like a squashed grape, the idiotically brash and astonishingly insecure decisions from our commanding brass, and being attacked with a lethally sharpened potato peeler by yet another best friend turned enemy, Yossarian! I barely escaped being executed by my commanding officers and best friends alike by stealing a plane they were all too happy to give me if it meant me leaving. Yeah, no one ever mentioned how much my feelings would be hurt in war, or how many clever contradictions pervaded that crazy fiction. And now, here I am, flying high and away in my own World War II bombing plane during a particularly dicey 
and well-sound-designed dogfight with the bear above Dresden. You may remember, Kiotis, Yo-Yo and I pulled a daring maneuver in which we dumped our load onto the bear's plane. Load of bombs, you degenerates. Jeez. Hoping to obliterate him to kingdom come! Side note, where is this kingdom come? What is this kingdom come we keep sending our most hated enemies to? Is it a kingdom full of... Never mind. Toe the line, old Maddie. Toe the line. Somehow, surprising no one, the plane may have been destroyed, but the demon bear Jim Pawsby was not, as he straddled one of the bombs and landed it safely upon the ground. Then somehow, all too quickly, took Paris. He just took it. Thinking about Jim Pawsby, beating up mimes with baguettes and riding unicycles up and down the Eiffel Tower while Parisians do their darndest to defeat him to no avail, I couldn't help but feel partially responsible. I know that's crazy talk. Still, all I could do was dwell on the fact that the bear had my hands and I had his paws for a reason, I think. We must have had some sort of disagreement with a great deal of name-calling on his part. Certainly. One thing led to another, and suddenly, a literal demon bear that had volunteered to fly with the Nazis had followed me. Yes, me! All Matty! From our wee-wee island, and now we're singularly plunging the City of Light into eternal darkness. Pushing the Nazis out, sure, but at what cost? This haunts me. I know it's truly irrational, Kiotis, and yet, it does. Well, there was really nothing else for it. I think I'll fly to Japan or Norway. One of them could be fun. I've always wanted to plant pine trees on the great fjords. Hold on, what's this cricket chirping at me for? Some sick monster has glued a top hat, waistcoat, and badge on the little critter. What's that? Well, I'll be. I think I understand. You're right, little one. I know what I must do. Responsibility and all that jazz. There we go, much better. Sorry I couldn't shoot the villainous gluemeister themselves. It was probably Arfie, the barstool. Ah, yes. Flying. Cockpit. Well, cock-a-doodle-do-it then, you coward. <laughs> Alas, dear Kiotis, as misfortune would have it, it appears I drift down, down, down toward the jaws of pause. B. Yes, somehow, here I am descending upon Paris, no less. Let us hope they mistake me for a US soldier and not old Matty. Otherwise, I'm in real trouble. But this is all too stressful. Let us escape to a short story to pass the time, eh? Let me just rummage through my little parachute bag here. More cords in here than the intestines of a piano. Don't need this. Wait. The pin might be useful for a lockpick or somewhat. Better keep that. Get this one out of here. Hmm. You haven't been paying your rent. Get me up. Get here. Yeah. Ah, here we are. The New Yorker with yet another thrilling short story, no less. Today's short story is The Poltroon Husband by Joseph O'Neill, a story which, like always, deeply entertained and deeply resonated. I've been accused of simply choosing my New Yorker stories at random, pulling them like mad rabbits from a hat of snobbery and mischief, which is absolutely correct, but we shan't dwell on that, for so far we've seemed weirdly lucky in the stories lining up thematically for the whole episode. Hopefully the story is no different. We begin our quaint adventure with what appears to be a biting rapport in a seemingly happy and long-enduring marriage. In some parallel universe, where likeable youngish people can afford houses, our heroes have sold their old house in Phoenix and built what our narrator, let us call him Joe for simplicity, calls their final abode. He discovers, in his fascination with the word spurred by his wife spurning the title Final Abode, 
that abode is derived from an old English verb meaning to wait, as does the expression to abide with me. Therefore, an abode is a place of waiting, and yet it is now colloquially a habitual residence, a home in modern nomenclature. Thus, Joe discovers an abode, a home, is by definition a place in which we all quietly wait for death. I would take this one step further, therefore, that to settle down and set roots with the white picket fence and all that jazz for a final abode is to accept death, perhaps not even to fear it. Hearing the strange fruit of this research, the wife, Jane, quips, I see that your darkness is somewhat useful to you, but it's a bit intellectually weak. This delights Joe, and it delights me also, though one wonders if this too makes me intellectually weak. Wait, stop wondering. Remember I used the word nomenclature? Stop! This is one of those stories with one of those voices that you just let run. One that, though nicely written, is like a tale straight from the mouth of a raconteur over drinks, rather than from the prized manuscript of a tortured literature professor. And like with the best raconteurs, I personally revel in just letting them run, stream of consciousness style, especially as they describe wonderful tales, interesting tidbits, and anecdotes, and then construct a deliciously themed sandwich. But enough about me. Their house is one that frankly even a pirate like me who wants to live on a boat can get on board with. Quite fittingly, this is because their home is constructed out of five shipping containers raised several feet above the ground, organized into separate zones or studios, built over a stream that runs through their land with a covered bridge connecting the zones. Honestly, it sounds like a sick way to build a house. Indeed, I remember on a sojourn to New Zealand, I went to an art gallery that was also sheltered by shipping containers. They had been lined with insulator and lovely picturesque timber, and it was like enjoying wonderful paintings while walking through Lego blocks that didn't obliterate the feetsies. I asked an artist about these shipping containers. Apparently, due to the ridiculously gluttonous nature of international trade, countless shipping containers are left abandoned. So to build structures, dare I say, abodes, from them is about as close to a recycled, ethically constructed house that I think we can get. I imagine a future wherein city skylines appear as if a yonder Lego city, entirely constructed of colourful shipping containers, while we are toyed with like the Lego people we are by the pudgy hands of the capitalist puppeteers. You know, I think many moons ago I was discussing a short story. Moving on! Here's where the story really resonated with me, so rest assured I shall meander again soon, don't you worry. Quote, One night... Jane grabbed my wrist. We are in bed. Unquote. Jane asks if Joe heard a noise, that noise being that dreaded, unnameable something from below. He had not, so they listened some more, finally hearing a thud that they both definitely heard this time. Whispering, they confirmed the noise did in fact tap their ear bongos, and they listened some more still. Another thud. Oh, the fear takes hold, and denial tries to pry off its ghoulish grip. Joe suggests it is probably a skunk, but due to the acoustics, these terribly unskunk-like sounds seem as though they are from below, downstairs, inside. I always find it strange, no matter how old I am, how downstairs can become such a disparate, faraway realm as if Hades slept on my couch. Wait, he does sleep on my couch. I never told him to get off before I died. The layabout. The next sound they hear, Joe relates, must be described as a cough. Maybe the skunk has a sniffle, a fever. This or nay, the sound is definitely inside the house, and the time has come to take a look. Joe bravely volunteers to make the catabasis, this suburban descent to the underworld, then is most surprised when Jane doesn't disagree. Not one to retreat, 
He redeploys, back to listening again. They sit in the dark and the quiet, much like I did for quite a long time, as they hear the fan or the faint roar of the comforter. They too try to find comfort in the banality of their house's symphony and convince themselves, it's fine. Meanwhile, when I would be beset by such paranoias, as I often was, my hyperactive imagination, instead of trying to comfort me, concocted a detailed story of burglary and mayhem from the slightest sound below. I personally slept with a cricket bat beside my bed at all times, and most nights, and I do mean that most nights, at around 2am, I got up and checked every room in the house for the intruder I knew was there. To this day, I have a memory of locking my suspicious gaze upon the living room curtains, then having a figure pop out from them. With this memory, I have no idea if it actually happened, and I have no recollection of what happened next. Could have been a dream. But as time wore on, this figure has taken many forms in my memory, including, but not limited to, that of a devil. Jane is more in my school of devilcraft and frickery, and wants to call 911, though Joe says it's nothing. However, Jane won't be able to sleep if the sounds go unchecked, and Joe understands her argument. If it is something, sleeping would be unwise while they are compromised. However, his mind is exhausting itself, both considering the sounds historic and irrelevant, while thinking it's unsafe for Jane to go and check herself. In other words, he wants them both to sleep and forget about it, while the strange twinge of logic and insecurity compels him to agree with Jane. He admits Jane is right, and that it should be checked, but instead of moving to go down the stairs, he stays in bed. Joe goes on to narrate why exactly he didn't move, insisting that it was not fear, though it sounds a lot like fear, but an overcoming of a dream-like inertness, causing an oneric paralysis. In this state, he couldn't even look to his staring wife. She soon loses patience, puts on a never-before-seen dressing gown as if it's a samurai robe, and ventures downward, unfortunately without katana. Joe, meanwhile, finds himself unable to intervene due to a mental whiteout, as he puts it, though he is mindful enough to remember that Arizona was teeming with guns and gunmen. Helpful addition. As soon as she left, his symptoms of paralysis abated bit by bit, and he etched to the edge of the bed. Soon a new kind of paranoia set in, as he swore he heard muttered voices, not just from his wife, but another, some responsive in tone. I remember analysing sounds like this. Off they were but drunkards in a faraway street with their aimless mutterings. But how, in my mind's theatre, I had eavesdropped on conspiracies and sinister schemes galore! Why I thought my house would be the prime target of such sophisticated criminal masterminds? I am yet to figure. But oh, the music of the night! How it can haunt one's imagination. For Joe, as for me, time was distorted by fear. Just like how when folk first heard Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, they failed to note how impossibly quickly reporters in the play supposedly whizzed about the country. He heard some movement, and soon enough, the living room light came on, and the fridge was being raided, and liquid was splishing and a-splashing. He came downstairs to find Jane drinking a glass of milk at the kitchen table, for her big fear was losing bone density, and ending up stooped like her mother. In Joe's mind, and perhaps in hers too, it is clear that he is ashamed that she braved the unknown below, and not him. The next day, they go about their business, doing their work both longer than usual, presumably to avoid each other, and have dinner that night together, with a steak and red wine. They have taste, these two, but neither seem to care for their delicious fod, until they discuss the night before. Perhaps he dreamt or imagined the hushed conversation, because Jane, uncharacteristically, isn't giving anything about it. Quote, I say, I heard voices. I heard you talking to someone. You did? She says. You're saying those voices I heard were nothing? You tell me, Jane says. You were there, I say. I wasn't. You tell me. Where were you? She says. In bed. Now she is eating her steak. 
I say, you're hungry now, I say. Who are you talking to? Jane says, are you sure you weren't dreaming? End quote. Now, at this point, admittedly, I feared I was about to see some American beauty, or, more horrifying in my opinion, revolutionary road marital suspicion, betrayal, and collapse play out. But, no. What followed was far more interesting. Three months passed, and neither of them brought up the subject again. While Jane had likely forgotten all about it, Joe, of course, did not. He bought a new dressing gown to become a knight samurai himself, and made a habit of following the old Maddie rule book, of patrolling every room and then sitting vigil further into the night, holding the line from his armchair. Jane, meanwhile, quite touchingly, both wanted him to come up to bed, staying at least half awake until he did, and bought him slippers to match his Hugh Hefner look for his battle raiment that was his dressing gown. Much like me, as I sat in my bed stroking my cricket bat like an evil villain and his more diabolical cat, he sat in his chair and learned all the nuances of bionomic audio. How this chatter of skunks can resemble the chirping of boids, or how, in my case, I pinpointed every goddamn sound in my neighborhood to a loud and very imagination-stimulating tea. Except for the night when my neighbors played Fireflies by Owl City all night on repeat. And that is not hyperbole. All night. On repeat. Yeah. As it always escalated to me leaving my bed with a cricket bat, so too did it escalate for Joe, who found himself in the middle of the woods, in the wide expanse of his land in the middle of the night, even though the woods was more of a Cops, and the middle of the night was more 10pm. Anyway, finding that without the city smog, moonlight is nicely very illuminating once one's eyes adjust. Before this reprieve, he lamented not having the motion-detecting lights around the house like he had wanted, before Jane voiced her complete opposition to the very idea, saying, quote, You'll just light a bunch of rodents, she said. She said, I refuse to live like a poltroon, which made me laugh. I love and admire her fiery verbal streak. End quote. Side note, I find their rapport and characterization really quite lovely. Like I'm guessing you did, I looked up the word poltroon before discovering the story itself explained it. It literally, and in my opinion quite funnily says, as, it, as is read in the story, that it means utter coward. This was immediately added to my quippy arsenal, but what was interesting for this story especially was that the word is descended from the old Italian poltrere, meaning to laze around in bed, from poltro, bed. Ah, poor Joe. It is quite a thing to have your whole soul indicted by etymology. But back in the woods, he searches and searches to find nothing. No dastardly intruders, no blades of the night. A samurai without an enemy. Well, a man in his dressing gown, in his backyard, at a latish hour, with no cricket bat. It had developed seamlessly throughout the story. But what I found most striking, endearing, and relatable about the story is how it becomes clear that everything done from that first night was not done out of fear, of a repeated incident of invaders, or an unknown hushed conversation, or secrets from his wife. It was all done out of shame, in an obsessive, irrational pursuit for redemption. After the end of every New Yorker fiction, they give a little sentence that pretty much thematically summarizes the story. Here it says, Joseph O'Neill on the comedy of cowardice, which is, to say the least, quite an unusual prospect. I found this story charming and amusing, and it resolves itself somewhat in that his delusional pursuit to prove his bravery gets to a point of being undoubtedly silly, like waking up in the gutter after a boozy bender and being forced to look at yourself. But I didn't find it uproariously funny. A true story is when I stepped out into the woods, listening to the night air fizz and crackle with my hyperprime senses. I didn't have someone text me and tell me to come back inside, tell me to look at myself and realize just how silly I was being. No, after a while of being more taut than a violin E-string, I got cold and I had to satisfy myself that there was nothing out there. 
for that night, at least. Overall, I really enjoyed this story. I enjoyed it for its honest and raw, while well-humored, self-reflective, and nigh-confessional style. I enjoyed it because it was well-paced, with nice characterization, and it was told in a fun but deceptively eloquent way. And so, I dubbed this story, The Poltrine Husband by Joseph O'Neill, three and a half musketeers out of four. Now, don't be gory nor garish, don't go cutting D'Artagnan in half. Imagine three musketeers with fancy gilded cricket bats. Ha ha! What a great story. And on a happy note of my paranoia, it reminded me of how staying up late into the night on my vigils, watching old movies from 10pm till 3am, I really had a chance to find a strong sense of personal identity in those solitary nights. It was my own personal slice of existence. I wouldn't trade that, nor my helpless paranoia, for all the world. What a great story. And just in time to start controlling our descent for a happy little landing on my bum bum. That's how I learned to land parachutes, so do not judge. Foist, I should put this copy of The New Yorker away as I collect the covers like a cool dude often does. Ah, dang it, why did I pack all these taut cords anyway? Well, now to steadily, with my stupid paws be bear claws, put this little magazine away and... Ah, there go the wires. And the chute above. At least there's room for the book now. Put that in, acknowledge gravity, and... Oh, how the old mighty fall, and how the old matty falls faster. Does that make me mightier? I choose yes. Well, when I find myself in times of trouble, Papa Hemingway comes to me. Speaking words of wisdom, don't sue me. Here comes some mad advice, y'all. Probably the last I give before I paint the Paris Opera red. Completely unashamedly, I am turning these advice segments into a concurrent chance to workshop my Hemingway impression, and thus they are becoming monologues. Today's advice is a compilation from a 1940 letter to Charles Scribner, another to Charles from 1953, a letter to Charles Poor of 1953, and a 1959 letter to L.H. Bragg. I call it the Charlie Company with L.H. Bragg. Cue the music. Charlie, there is no future in anything. I hope you agree. That is why I like it at a war. Every day and every night, there is a strong possibility that you'll get killed and not have to write. I have to write to be happy whether I get paid for it or not, but it's a hell of a disease to be born with. I like to do it, which is even worse. That makes it from a disease into a vice. Then I want to do it better than anybody has ever done it, which makes it into an obsession. An obsession is terrible. Hope you haven't got any. That's the only one I've got left. Then there were times when you had to write. Not conscience, just peristaltic action. And you felt sometimes like you could never write, But after a while, you knew sooner or later you could write another good story. It was really more fun than anything. That was really why you did it. It wasn't conscience. It was simply that it was the greatest pleasure. It had more bite to it than anything else. There's no rule on how it is to write. Sometimes it comes easily and perfectly. Sometimes it is like drilling rock and then blasting it out with charges. I love to write, but it has never gotten any easier to do, and you can't expect it to if you keep trying for something better than you can do. Well... That was some honestly spectacular advice, if I may say so myself. And I dare say that my Hemingway impression is getting better every couple of months. Shame there was no advice in there about a human's innate ability to fly. The only thing that can save me now, I fear, is if I were to perhaps swing on a chandelier. The gilded end of a swashbuckler's rope. By the way, booyah, unintentional rhyme. Although that doesn't really work for a scripted podcast, now does it? Well, I hope you gave me it, at least. Goodbye forever, Kyotis! A chandelier! Swing and catch.
Aha! Not a threat to is, but now I clutch safely on the counterweight. Alas! The chandelier has fallen upon the head of the wretched woman who had come to the opera for the first time in her life! Odd way to describe her, but he is right! It seems that chandelier randomly dropped and killed that poor spectator! Strangely, I can't help but feel partially responsible yet again! It's a shame that the opera singer was taken away by some spooky shadow gremlin who gave me a thumbs up for some reason. She could have cleared up the whole story. I say, the chandelier falling towards nuts but the opera ghost! Furious at us for having not met their demands, they wreak terrible vengeance! Hark! But where is fair Christine? A ghost, you say? A ghost may be. The gremlin was like a ghost to me. One minute they were there and then... Never mind, don't sue me. Now is not yet the time for Hugo. I'm starting to feel I may have aided a kidnapping. Or worse yet, aided Jim Pawsby! Only that unicycling bear with my small, spindly, skeletal, and spoopy hands would haunt an opera house, potentially using a labyrinthian network of catacombs beneath as a lair, sabotage, manipulation, blackmail, and murder in order to hold the world of song for ransom in some vain and sadistic attempt to steal love and worship. I must say, really only that demon bear could perpetrate such egregiously heinous malice. For not only is it idiotically mad, idiotically so that only my arch-nemesis would do it, but so beastly and so yeastily unromantic. Hear that, potential filmmakers and or musical creators? This is an unromantic concept. On the one hand, I am loath to delve into catacombs once more and confront Jim Pawsby for fear that we would trade more than blows like last time. Swapped heads, maybe. But on the other, not only do I easily have the best resume for such a matter, but in the preferred chance that it is a ghost, then I can channel one of Old Maddie's other great idols, Bill Murray. So while I prepare to go busting some ghosts in honour of my favourite ghost movie, sorry Patrick Swayze fans, I thought the best way to defeat an opera ghost is to think like an opera ghost. But I'm lazy, so I thought I'd kidnap this Gaston Leroy fellow who seems to be such an expert on the subject. Instead of telling me how to defeat the opera ghost, he first decided to tell me his life story, which made some bread, which I keep forgetting to do for Delicious Word Sandwich. So thanks, I guess, Gaston. Don't tell me how to make my sandwich or run my show. Jeez, stay dead. I must say though, has there ever really been a good Gaston? Let's find out. Here's the bread. Now I don't understand French because I bet on the wrong horse and learnt Esperanto, which is what I get for betting on horses. So I had David Stewart Davies convey Gaston Leroux's old man ramblings to me, as Davies did in his introduction of 2008's The Phantom of the Opera, a Wordsworth edition. Gaston Leroux was born May 6, 1868, in Paris, the son of wealthy store owner Julien Leroux and Marie Alphonsine, which proved to be for Leroux some prickly privilege that pervaded his whole life's existence, for better or worse. His grandparents owned a shipbuilding company in the small coastal village of saint valery en caux in Normandy, France, where he resided with his parents again, for better or worse. He attended school in Normandy, during which he acquired a love for sailing, fishing, writing, and the works of Victor Hugo and Alexander Dumas. Ha-ha! From an early age, he knew he wanted to become a writer, because it's the best. But that swashbuckling bohemian road was, alas, forbidden by his father. So he instead studied law in Paris on his father's orders, despite the fact that he wanted to be a journalist, and more passionately, a writer. As we know, Kiotis, many a great author has come out of journalism, just as many a great author, similarly, 
dropped law like a sack of boiled manure. Your pal old Maddie has had more than a little exposure to the legal industry, and let me tell you, it does about as much against writing as it does for it. For at first, it opens a whole world of words, new and old, and endless tales of villainy and triumph and dramatics, and it also is a pretty good gym for writing. But then day by day, that vast fresh world closes tighter and tighter upon you as you're crushed between walls of legislation, noose-like loopholes, maddening, petty arguments between legal professionals and civilians alike, cosmic frustrations, biting through one's lip at injustice, and just general grinding repetition. Plus, your fingers start to hurt after a while. But that's my impression without even being a lawyer, the lament of a misplaced writer, so to speak. If the law is your passion in any capacity, I wish you all the best, and the justice, if you can find it. Anyway, poor Gaston was forced into it, and even more unfortunately, was smart enough to carry out his father's orders, graduating in law in 1899, that is, at least, until his father's death. What I will say is that though it's a shame he was forced into an occupation not of his choosing, a practice, subvertly or overtly, still going today, that wading through the dark, murky, tangled woods of the law does indeed inform one a lot for a future in literature. He inherited nearly a million francs, which is about $732,000 dues today, by my flipping calculation. Don't quote me on that, I was lazily calculating. And he quite promptly gave up the law and devoted his time to... That of the borderline outlaw, with copious drinking of fine wines, extravagant feastings upon gourmet foods, and dancing devilishly into thrill-seeking gambling. Anything but writing. In Gaston Leroux's defense, I'd drink hard too if I was forced into law, and being paid what a lawyer is traditionally paid, I had a very little respect for money. Though I'm not sure whether he practiced in law or just worked as a court reporter at the time. He also randomly got married to one Marie Lefranc in 1899, but it didn't last. One wonders if Gaston awoke finally from a however long bender and realized, whoopsie doodle, he was a married man. I don't know how he handled this, but I do know that later on in 1902, he was in Switzerland. Let us hope he did not flee there. And there he met Jeanne Cavat, having two children with her named Alfred Gaston and Madeleine. Great, more Gastons. Gaston and Jean married in 1917. But back to his drinking, fighting, gambling youth. Alas, like many individuals released from a strict regime, he overindulged. And very soon he had squandered his fortune. Good one, Gaston. He could have done what the best gamblers do and funded a full-time swing at a career in writing. But instead he went for the cheap thrills, which is a far more expensive lesson to learn. He had squandered such a ludicrous amount within a year and found himself in a position where he needed to work to live. At least... He wasn't living to work. He became a court reporter, which is the best seat in the courthouse, if you ask me, and theatre critic, which is just the best seat in the house, for Le Echo de Paris. In 1892, he made his name as France's first investigative journalist by solving a sensational case before it came to trial. Indeed, by the age of 30, Leroux was the most celebrated travelling reporter of his day. No one transcribes like Gaston, critiques plays like Gaston, or solves pre-trial crimes of the century like Gaston. As a reporter, yes, he's intimidating, but what about writing that Gaston? That's parody law, y'all. Not gonna sue me today. Not bad for on-the-fly stream of consciousness. Fun little side note about this podcast. Every episode is trying to defy Ernest Hemingway's declaration. The first draft of anything is shit. Emphasis on trying. Give me a wee break. Just a wee one. Meanwhile, Gaston finally stopped gallivanting across the world and solving crimes for a goddamn minute and he started to write novels in the early 1900s. He wanted to follow the gumshoe footprints of the masters of detective fiction, the godfather of macabre Edgar Allan Poe, and the fairy-believing Arthur Conan Doyle. Yes, Arthur Conan Doyle did believe in fairies. In true Hemingway fashion, 
Gaston immediately decided he could do better than them, and obsessed to be the best with his own mystery stories. Knowing what I do now, I can't help but remember and admire the unapologetic procedural nature of Leroux's mysteries. This is someone who has done the legwork himself in real life, and whether it works for the story or not, he feels the methodology is important. If anything, it's important to him, and you got to respect the heart in that. Between the years 1903 to 1927, he produced two dozen newspaper serials and seven plays. See what you could have done if you funded a full-time writer's career earlier, Gaston? You ninny. But then again, that brings into question the merit of practice versus experience, which I am not yet inclined, nor yet equipped, or experienced, to elaborate upon. In 1907, Gaston's first golden bullet in the industry was The Mystery of the Yellow Room, which focused on the adventures of crime reporter Joseph Rouletable, a youth with a bullet-shaped head. Yep, a bullet boy. Reading this, I thought they meant that he had a head like Dan Aykroyd's cone heads, which I unfortunately have seen and recommend getting some Google images up, don't watch the movie, so you may cry for me. But looking up this character, what this shape in truth connotes is a wide brow and scalp sloping down to an acute pointed chin. I'll admit, I was a little disappointed and wanted to see the cone heads taking on Jack the Ripper. The Yellow Room novel was a classic Cluedo affair, a locked room murder mystery where the police are stumped and Gaston's crime reporter and his Watson surrogate solved the case and saved the day! Which, again, when knowing his history, this at least doesn't come across entirely as self-indulgent wish fulfillment. Now, contrary to popular belief, the capitalist machine's hunger for sequels is much longer than just recent decades, and the success of The Yellow Room prompted a sequel featuring Rouletable, The Perfume of the Lady in Black, in 1909, which sounds like two dime store mystery pulp novels smooshed into one, which I think is about as sequely as a pulp mystery gets, considering their inherently anthological nature. Perfume of the Lady in Black really should either be Perfume of the Lady or Lady in Black, but anyway. Perfume of the Lady in Black was not as successful as its predecessor, because Leroux's greatest interest, and later my favourite virtue about him, began as his greatest vice for this novel, in that he was too focused on introducing psychological material concerning characters and relationships into the plot, rather than simply writing a well-paced and nicely methodical mystery. In a way, this is reflective of how he turned his squandering a fortune on gambling and drinking into an immensely personal asset, by using his bounce from rock bottom to skyrocket to fantastic, journalistic, and literary heights. And once again, no one bounces like Gaston. In 1909, he was made a Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur, and so he paid back France by publishing in his papers, week by week, a new kind of mystery extravaganza. A psychological mystery melodramatic bonanza, in fact, that would capture the world's imagination. In 1910, Leroux had his greatest and most enduring literary success with the Phantom of the Opera. Back to old Maddie for a second. It seems this coot is finally going to tell me about mine enemy rather than his crazy life, which is admittedly more fascinating than I expected. That being said, if I am not sold of the truth of this case, I am gearing up to fight him and then that damn bear. Far apart, and in my opinion far better, than Andrew Lloyd Webber or Joel Schumacher's interpretations, Phantom is simultaneously a detective story and a dark romantic melodrama inspired by Leroux's obsessive fascination with the Paris Opera House, the criminally insane, and all the mysteries within both labyrinthine networks. As we'll find in Almaty's Paris saga, yeah, saga, these Parisian authors are, let's say, proud, very proud of their city's architecture. I am discovering, Kiotis, that if you embark on a French novel named after a monumental structure, be prepared for an in-depth gush about architecture, which, depending on intent, can be good or bad. For Leroux, I quite enjoyed this aspect because he clearly adored the architecture, but didn't spend pages insisting that I adore it too. What he instead did was he spun it in his imagination like a good ex-lawyer and sold it to me persuasively through fiction 
as if arguing a point of why it should stick in my memory. The structure is undoubtedly impressive however you spin it, but not every structure or great mountain for that matter sticks in my mind. Hemingway, for example, concreted Kilimanjaro in my imagination by giving me an experience as a writer dying of gangrene, seeing it in yonder distance, imagining the corpse of that all too high snow leopard that I now remember as the reason for my first death all those moons ago, and how I got in this mess. Did Hemingway kill me? No, no, I killed me. And the leopard. And like Hemingway, and to a much dumber extent, me, if you remember Kilimanjaro as old Maddie's death site for some reason, Gaston sold the Paris Opera by telling a story that in itself showcased the story and stories eh, of the building, which is very clever and I guess architecture literature's best version of a show don't tell, short of actually going and seeing the damn building. According to Davies, the Paris Opera is one of the architectural wonders of the 19th century. Opulent in visage and lavish in furnishing, it spared no expense for its singing dinosaurs. Get ready for some architectural description. Mmm, sexy. The structure comprises 17 floors with absolutely no elevators, but including five deep and vast cellars and subcellars beneath the building. Very spooky, very mischief. Hearing this, I too struggled to conceive the sheer size of this contained cultural citadel. As quoted in an article in Scribner's magazine in 1879, the opera house contained 2,531 doors with 7,593 keys, how many different locks are on those doors, is what I'm wondering. Entering your dressing room would be like solving an escape room. There were nine vast reservoirs with two tanks holding a total of 22,222 gallons of water. So hit up the opera if ever in doubt or in drought is what I'm hearing. At the time, there were 14 furnaces for heating and dressing rooms for 500 performers. I dearly hope there were productions when 500 performers were absolutely necessary which may just be a safe bet because there was a stable for a dozen or so horses to be used in the more ambitious productions. I imagine an opera based on Don Quixote, with the Lord of La Mancha striding onto stage on an actual horse, belting the most heroic of ballads. What a time. What a place. Why wasn't I casted? Doing this episode has convinced me that I absolutely must see the Paris Opera! In essence, the Paris Opera was truly a very small but very magnificent city. It was during a visit that Leroux heard the bizarre legend of the opera Ghost, who allegedly lived secretly in the cavernous labyrinth of the opera cellars, and who, apparently, engineered some terrible accidents within the theatre as though he bore some tremendous, relentless grudge. Personally, I like to think a stagehand on their first day of work dropped a sandbag or something, blamed it on a ghost, and then committed to the bit until it was far, far too late. Indeed, I do imagine the catacombs back then, a light by soft candle glow, would have sparked any imagination, especially a journalistic one like Leroux, to think that some elusive, malevolent figure could make their lair there. Alas, today it seems these tunnels are as flatly lit as Schumacher's film adaption, and they have about all the mysterious allure as a sewerage factory. For Arthur Conan Doyle, it was fairies. Yes, he believed in fairies. For Leroux, his childlike belief in the fantastic culminated in a belief in the phantasmic, a belief in the phantom. Journalizing it up, he acquired a series of accounts relating to the mysterious ghost. Once again, I like to think it was people adding to that poor stagehand's ludicrous snowball of a lie to cover their own misdeeds. All the same, whatever the truth, Leroux had enough theatre gossip to put together a novel that, to me, is a lot like my favourite pulp novels not to come for another few decades, the hard-boiled P.I. stories of Raymond Chandler. But we'll get there. Like a good journalist and like Chandler, Leroux's pulp is more concerned with the cultivation of great scenes 
the suspense often ebbing and flowing constantly from scene to scene in somewhat absurd circumstances, like a good newspaper serial to keep people reeled in, in order to eventually piece together a plot. All the fun and the intrigue is in the procedure and the analysis of the characters, like the opera ghost or the Paris opera itself, rather than any big Agatha Christie-like reveal of the murderer in a traditional whodunit. The building is an ideal setup for Leroux's story, and using the real opera as its setting, Leroux was able to enhance the overall sense of realism in his novel. It is believed that during the construction of the opera house, it became necessary to pump underground water away from the foundational pit of the building, thus creating a huge subterranean lake which inspired Leroux to use it as one of his settings, the lair of the phantom, which, I must add, is a fun sentence to say. One more time. Indulge me. The lair of the phantom. This lair made me think of two things. One, the amazing subterranean ocean of journey to the centre of the earth, and two, Batman, and consequently, just how batshit insane it is to have a lair. I dare say the only lair dweller, arguably not insane, is Zorro, and Zorro versus the Phantom of the Opera is a movie I would want to see. Lately, whenever I think of Batman and just how unhinged he must really be to do what he does, I think of the Phantom. If the Phantom had just that little bit of human kindness at the beginning of his life, just that little bit to give him a sense of justice and right and wrong, before all of the loss and the superhuman accumulation of skills, he very well could have been a 19th century French Batman. But he's not, no matter how interesting a story that would have been. Instead, we have an even more intriguing tale of one of the first iterations of a supervillain. Though not without sympathy, Leroux creates a pitiable, cruel, selfish, and yet oh-so-cunning villainous creature that has become an iconic monster and or hero, somehow, of horror literature and horror movies. Using that truly terrifying Punjab lasso and a complicated network of tunnels, secret doors, stage devices, torture chambers, and smoke and mirrors. I was never on his side throughout the whole story, and Gaston Leroux was too concerned with convincing me that Eric really existed, as one can read in the author's introduction and framing of the book, to try to convince me that Eric was also the hero of the story. He tries to convince me that he is pitiable, and he is right, but he's no hero, nor a great romantic figure, but he is a great figure of tragedy, and easily the most fascinating. To be sure, where Leroux had failed with a sequel to The Yellow Room has now become my favourite attribute. This book is him gleefully exploring the psychology of the criminally insane. In my opinion, it's why this story, along with all of its iconography and strong pacing, made it stand out among its endless peers in the pulp genre. To be sure, the story being written as if it was an historical and real investigation and researched revealing of the mystery behind the opera ghost was genius, especially from an established reporter, to enhance the thrills of the tale and ground the melodrama. But like the fairy tale of Beauty and the Beast and Victor Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame, another damn architectural literary marvel, the terrifying yet amazing Eric with his weaponized opera house and underworld lair meant the whole shebang was far too heavy and powerful iconography to ever be dropped from our memory. Saying that, I think Hades can go damn well crash on that literal underworld lair couch. Jeez, I killed a duck today for not paying rent and I will slay thee too, Hades. A chevalier with an illustrious reputation as a reporter and now an established literary figure, whatever happened to Gaston after Phantom was buried? Surely he didn't die with Eric, spoilers, or those say. Have you ever seen Gaston Leroux and the Phantom of the Opera in the same room? What if Gaston was the lying stagehand? Hmm? Okay, shut up, old Maddie. You don't want to rile up the Parisian elite with your society-shattering mind-benders. 
The point is, from essays to online biographies, even Wikipedia, the record about Gaston Leroux's life after Phantom vanishes like his magnum opus's dark anti-hero. Before I reveal his elusive ending, as I shall Eric, I want to reflect on what it is to be known for one great work. Oh, and to be clear, Eric's ending, nor Gaston Leroux's, was not Love Never Dies. Rest assured, love did indeed die. Now, I am but a humble new voice, but I love reading about artists, up-and-coming and the legends, and books about up-and-coming legends are honey to this old bare-handed literary detective. Some artists absolutely hate being known for only the one work, even coming to resent the work itself and any who celebrate it, while others have eternal gratitude and love meeting fans and reveling in the same famous quotes again and again and again and again and again. Not having any such works to speak of myself, don't rub it in, this is something of course that I can't personally relate to, but I can't help but think that being frustrated is the last thing I would be if one particular story or delicious word sandwich made a colossal enriching impact upon humanity. While I understand wanting to always do better, as Hemingway said, it's frustrating or almost a maddening obsession always trying to do better than you can write. And while it's also frustrating to not be appreciated for who you are, but constantly being reminded of who you were, the fact that one made something that endures shouldn't be a slight on their ego or an indication of mediocrity in their other work. I think it should always be upheld as a moment in which the world vibed with their jazz and their jazz vibed right back. Not even the best pieces of art do that sometimes. So even if one hits, that's something to always revel in. As for one fleeting moment, the stars aligned and the world understood and was glad to do so. Anyone who doesn't appreciate their popular milestone work, if you will, I think is missing a very crucial opportunity also for self-reflection. What better way to challenge your own thinking and grow than to subvert, critique, and overall play with a tangible form of a version of yourself that exists in the public perception? Eventually, I did discover that Gaston didn't suddenly die after The Phantom became successful. I suspect he continued to enjoy nice wine and expensive food with his family, satisfied with the stars aligning once to shine in one righteous beam upon him for all to see, then enjoying the shade thereafter, going on to write a few more nicely sharply named pulp novels and dying in his home at the age of 59 on April 15th, 1927. If Gaston Leroux has taught me anything, it's that every misstep, Every success and every chance to repeat both is absolutely essential for growth, and overall a damn well-seized existence. I firmly believe that no matter how dismal a hand might seem, there are no setbacks. Every step is a step forward, even if they're a little wayward. And so with this, I challenge thee, Kyotis, to set out to make the hazardous to create, and perhaps hazardous to eat, bread to represent the wine-drinking, wayward-traveling, eventual pulp-writing Gaston Leroux, which is red wine longan bread. Make sure the red wine is French, preferably Pinot Noir to fit with the Noir pulp background, and don't be worried about any missteps. They're part of the journey for thee and for your yeast. It is a rich bread, much like Gaston was, but like Leroux, it is daring to be something different, for better or worse. Now back to old times with old Maddie. <laughs> Well, after drinking far too much wine with Gaston, and singing in the tavern about how great he is, I realised I was becoming Le Fou, and before I knew it I was in slick Disney animation. This is not how I wanted to be acquired by Disney, so I hightailed it out of their mid-chorus, which broke my wacky heart. Once I was done with that silly nonsense, I strapped on my ghost-busting pack and charged into the Paris Opera. 
The foyer and stage was swarming with bumbling bureaucrats, outraged owners, and concerned colleagues of the kidnapped singer, who I discovered was the up-and-coming operatic sensation Christine Daae. The owners stomped their foot at me. Old Matty, they said. She must be returned to us. She's the greatest opera singer this building has ever heard. I slapped them down and kicked them for good measure for forgetting Julie de Aubigny, Mademoiselle de Maupin. Look her up. All the same, I ventured forth beneath the stage and into the catacombs running beneath the building. Great, more catacombs. I wish Bill Murray was with me. But then again, he is always with me. Unfortunately, a fella named Raoul was there too, along with a mysteriously underdeveloped character who arrived late but is oddly incredibly important to our adventure, named the Persian. Raoul kept telling me to keep my hands level with my eyes, but I know when someone is trying to bamboozle a high five out of me, so get away from me, you nerd. I've got a firm grip on my ghost blaster. Dang, why do things keep coming out like that? Oh, I need to stop. Raoul began telling me about the opera ghost, but he was making it out to be as dull as he is, so I stepped in and told it better. Here's the meat, or meat substitute, of the Phantom of the Opera. Cue the organ, I guess. Oh, we don't have an organ. Alright, let's get to it. Our story begins before the beginning. That's right, prologue. Where Leroux first-hand explains somewhat too laboriously the research for bringing this astounding legend of the Phantom together some 30-odd years after the event supposedly took place. This convincing hearsay researched includes first-hand accounts, elusive diary entries, and vague research from the Paris Opera House's own library, none of which we can see as a primary document, all secondary from the hand of Leroux. There is also an ending after the story ends, an epilogue, if you will, that explains some of the Phantom's history, such as how he came to work in the Opera House, which, by the way, is sadder than D&D Rogue's backstory of a 16-year-old. Let me tell you. The narrative finally begins in earnest on the night of a retirement party. The old opera directors are turning over the venue to the new leadership of Armand Monchamin and Fermin Richard. And as we all know, a change of management always brings good tidings, Kyoktiz. I firmly believe that change is good, even fundamental to swell living. Yet I am yet to experience joys and fundamental improvements when there's a change in management and business. And strangely, I don't think I can put it down to simply as change being annoying in the workplace. An odd phenomenon, as change is the one constant in life, I think it comes down to new management never changing the things that have oft been said need to change to improve everything. They change other parts of the process, either ignorantly or outright malignantly, if not, in an ideal world, revolution. How did I get here? Ah yes, management. Ruining my podcast, how dare they get out of here. As the men talk and the dancers prepare for the evening's entertainment, several dancers make mention of having seen the Phantom. It's all actor gossip at first. One is terrified, as she insists she saw the Phantom, while others either dismiss or support the claims, but either or give it no more credence than having seen a bat in a belfry. To them, the myth of the Phantom is kind of freaky, though not important. Indeed, not far from the truth, until Eric decides to take action. Spoiler, his name's Eric. Before long, alas, the chief stagehand, Joseph Bouquet, is found hanged in the basement. This is the sobering introduction to the Phantom's reign of terror. It seems poor Joey Jojo did a Joey no-no and stumbled too close to the Phantom's lair, falling into a pit of despair and being hanged. Whether by his hand or not, it matters none. Even if you're on suicide watch in a high security prison, apparently. Never mind. But close one door, open another. One bad night for one is the best night ever for the other. 
One odd phenomena in the legal system I found is that it's always interesting finding cases of woe that occurred on your birthday from your youth. There you were, enjoying your cake, friends and presents, while someone out there was murdered. You sicko. Did you enjoy that cake? Hmm? What did it taste like? I bet it tastes like death, you schadenfreude. Anyway, moving on. The night proves a success for fledging star Christine Daae, who was only an understudy before this time. As it turns out, High Five Thief Raoul de Chegny is watching Christine's performance with his brother, and immediately falls in love with her, as one does, especially in French literature. Though it should be mentioned, they were childhood besties, and seeing her thriving gave him much dopamine squirts. Fun fact, dopamine squirts got me kicked out of a meeting at the office. I regret nothing, although, James, this is on you. You introduced dopamine squirts to me. When Christine faints, he rushes to her dressing room, and it is revealed here that the two share a past. Ryle reminds Christine that he chased her scarf into the sea once, when they were children, a tale which most definitely she digs. Then we're treated to a lovely exposition dump explaining how Christine's father was a famous violinist who believed in the angel of music, promising this angel would come to Christine one day, and that Christine happily accompanied him on his bohemian travels. They settle in a seaside town where she met Raoul, she left when her father died, and the two have not seen each other since that time. It's nice, I think, that she ventured forth to follow her dream and became a singer in the big city rather than moping around about her father's death. Or, say, squandering her inheritance on drinking and gambling instead of using said funds to pursue the dream? Gaston? Hmm. When Raoul leaves her dressing room, he is most irked to hear a male's voice as he listens just outside the door. You are leaving, you creep. The voice says that it has made Christine a star, just as it promised. Later, after the murderous festivities, the old directors inform Moncharmin and Richard about the supposed phantom and his demands. Box 5 is to be reserved only for him, and 20,000 francs are to be paid to him monthly. I have to say, seeing that the phantom lives in an underground lair, surviving on mysterious cuisine and rarely leaves the building, what in the blazes does he need the money for? much less a monthly allowance. What does he buy? Elaborate costumes for his weird shadow play, I suppose. The new directors agreed with old Maddie's thinking, which is rarely a good sign, and so they scoff at the demands and consider the Phantom a joke. They soon receive a letter from the Phantom, foreshadowing the deadly punchline, and highlighting his anger at this slight. It's interesting how a criminal so skilled uses all his prowess, wits, and malice to hold the opera hostage seemingly for his own pleasure. I suppose he's doing this because he is such a musical talent, and he feels that he is entitled to a place at the opera, but can't do it by traditional means. But you know, as a great detective once said, cool motive, still murder. Later, Christine reaches out to Raoul and meets him in the seaside town where they first met. There they met and twirl about a bit, Raoul being a sap, but a well-meaning one. She reveals that the voice he heard in her dressing room is the angel of music, a spirit her father said would watch over her, if not her father himself. When Raoul follows Christine to the cemetery, gotta stop doing that man, stop following her, he hears violin music. He is then found unconscious the next day, attacked by a cloaked figure with a face like a skull. The new directors are still certain the Phantom is a hoax, somehow, but again receive a letter. How do they think he's a hoax? A guy was found hung, I guess they thought it was suicide, but, you know, pretty obvious. I guess authority loves ignoring obvious not-suicides. Moving on. At this point, I would understand them refusing to believe in a literal ghost. Even in Ghostbusters, the entire film keeps having to convince new characters right up to the mayor to believe in ghosts when they're taking over the whole dang city, 
almost as quickly as Jim Pawsby took Paris. But to not believe that the Phantom was a tangible person posing a very real threat to the opera is so dang foolhardy. Yet, one would expect that of management. This time, the Phantom shakes it up and demands that Christine be given the lead in Faust, among other things, and reminds them about Box 5. Again, the directors scoff at the idea. I get the whole not negotiating with criminals bit, although hot damn, at least notify police that there's been some literal ransom letters issued. How could they ignore such an obvious rising lethal issue? Oh yes, again, management. I'm with you, Gaston. I get your themes. So instead, they cast their lead opera diva, Carlotta, in the role, reserve box five for themselves, and hire someone against the Phantom's wishes. Really whacking the devil's hornet's nest like a bloody piñata there. And guess what the candy is that falls when it breaks, or more accurately, snaps. When the night's performance commences, Carlotta's voice croaks like a frog's, to everyone's horror. I still don't know exactly how the Phantom pulled this trick off. He is an extraordinary being, but it is revealed more and more that he is not truly supernatural. Perhaps it was done through some sort of spiked drink. He is a talented ventriloquist, but I don't think he could actually throw his voice and croak to replace Carlotta's voice. Surely she could sing over ventriloquism. She's an opera diva. But I guess it was some sort of spiked drink. Moreover, on this night, the house chandelier drops onto the unsuspecting audience, thus injuring people and killing the person they hired against the Phantom's wishes. How the hell did he aim a chandelier? This is a fun, dark, and intriguing story, but it's also best to remember that it is a pulpy affair and not to be taken too seriously. It was issued in a newspaper week to week for thrills. What's neat about this chandelier falling is that it was an historical event. So, you can take your pick. Was it the Phantom's maliciously aimed chandelier? Was it old Matty falling from a World War II fighter plane, swinging on the chandelier, clutching the counterweight and causing it all to fall in a horrible but also kind of cunning accident? Or was it just an historical mishap? An unfortunate tragedy due to Murphy's Law. Raoul searches for Christine, and upon finding her, is told to meet her at a masquerade ball, which can only go well when there's a certified terrorist running amok. He attends, but surely enough, also in attendance, is a figure dressed as the plague known as the Red Death from Edgar Allan Poe's classic dark short story, The Masquerade of the Red Death. Real subtle cosplay, Eric, you cheeky fanboy, you. Seeing the Phantom's boldness, Christine informs Raoul that she no longer can see him, trying to protect him, of course. So here we delve into one of the most sobering aspects of the true horror of this book, toxic controlling relationships. But no, by all means, Mr. Lloyd Webber, make the Phantom sexy and the hero in Love Never Dies. In my opinion, in the words of Gaston Leroux, l'air irresponsible, she flees to her dressing room, and when Raoul follows, he witnesses her disappear into her mirror, through the looking glass into a most twisted wonderland. Secret. When Raoul again seeks Christine out the next day and finds her with her guardian, Madame Valerius, he reveals that he will be leaving within a month. Before he leaves, Christine agrees to a secret engagement and reveals all. She explains that the Phantom, Eric, is jealous and dangerous, controlling, manipulative, murderous and a little deprivation of liberty E. She takes Raoul to the rooftop, hoping that the Phantom cannot hear them. She tells Raoul that she thought Eric was the angel of music, but he is, in fact, a mortal, grotesque, warped individual, and then informs about his physical deformities. Both Christine and Raoul pause, feeling they are being watched. 
Behold Christine's harrowing description. This is, of course, after Christine boldly tears the mask from the phantom's face, throwing him into despair. I will now let her relate in her own words. Raoul, you have seen Death's head at Peros, and then you saw Red Death stalking about at the last masked ball. But all those Death's heads were motionless, and their dumb horror was not alive. But imagine, if you can, Red Death's mask suddenly coming to life in order to express with the floor black holes of its eyes, its nose and its mouth, the extreme anger, the mighty fury of a demon, and not a ray of light from the sockets. For, as I learned later, you cannot see his blazing eyes except in the dark. I fell back against the wall and he came up to me, grinding his teeth hideously. And, as I fell upon my knees, he hissed mad, incoherent words and curses at me. Leaning over me, he cried, Look, you want to see? See, feast your eyes, glut your soul on my cursed ugliness. Look at Eric's face. Now you know the face of the voice. You are not content to hear me, eh? You wanted to know what I looked like. Oh, you women are so inquisitive. Well, are you satisfied? I'm a good-looking fellow, eh? When a woman has seen me, as you have, she belongs to me. She loves me forever. I'm a kind of Don Juan, you know and drawing himself up to his full height, with his hand on his hip, wagging the hideous thing that was his head on his shoulders, he roared, Look at me! I am Don Juan Triumphant! And when I turned away my head and begged for mercy, he drew my head back to him brutally, twisting his dead fingers into my hair. Wow. For the next fortnight, he kept her in captivity playing her loyal slave and gradually giving her more freedoms about the lair, while captivating her with his melancholic opera masterpiece, Don Juan Triumphant. In the meantime, she burns his masks, and tries her best to assure him that she is not horrified by his appearance. Eventually, he believes in the contrived relationship they were building, and that she would return to him if he let her go. And because of how he manipulated her pity as much as her fear, she does return to him. It's real bad, y'all. But again, Mr. Lloyd Webber, please, enjoy your sexy, tragic anti-hero. She says all this, and you better believe that they are being watched and every word is heard. For me, this is where the novel shines, when it exceeds the limits of the dumb horror it seems on the surface and reveals the true horror of Eric, his relentless, merciless, controlling, and dangerously pitiful psychology. While physically it describes the Phantom as this nigh-demonic, omnipresent creature, with two dull blue lights deep in shadowy sockets clinging above upon Apollo's lyre, glowing in the gloom, watching, waiting, willing to kill. The horror I find is how when the chips are down and Christine is in his clutches, he abuses her like she belongs to him, and imprisons her both emotionally and physically in kind. Ryle and Christine leg it upon spying the two eyes blazing in the dark. As they run, Ryle is certain that it was Eric, but Christine says, You're getting like me now, seeing him everywhere can't help but wonder if all the -the over-the-top melodrama of this story was put in to sell a rose true horror story, that of the psychologically abusive and controlling relationship. The next night, the lights go out in the middle of the performance, and when they are turned back on, Christine is gone. At this point in old times with old Maddie, Raoul turns to me, realizing that he saw me come down with the chandelier as Christine was stolen away. I say he's talking crazy, and that I was not colluding with Eric, but had obviously fallen out of a World War II bombing plane after escaping from a desert island. He admitted he was talking crazy, and that I was obviously the right story, and he dropped it. 
the chump really wanted that high five. Yes. At this point in the story, Raul is on the verge of telling the police about Eric. Also at this point, there have been multiple homicides, a kidnapping, sabotage, blackmail and extortion. But no, no one has yet called the police. And they're not going to either. Instead, Raul is stopped by the Persian, an odd figure often in the opera house, but here he comes majorly into play and escalates the novel a little bit too quickly through one character. The Persian then takes Raul to Christine's dressing room and shows him how she disappeared through her mirror. They both go through, and the person leads Raul and me down into the underground cellars. I now see why you are here, Mr. Persian, and I think that just about brings us up to speed. We travel along, intending to drop through a panel into Eric's house. It is a great plan, and Bill Murray believes in me. Eric, meanwhile, demands that Christine marry him. But don't you worry, fair lady, because old Maddie's coming to the rescue. Ha ha! Oh, never mind. We've all ended up in a torch chamber. Eric, furious to discover us in his kinky chamber despite Christine's lies to deter him from our discovery, turns the torture chamber on. It's a strange room of illusion and mirrors, heat and distortion, making it appear as if we are lost in a forest. A desert forest, if you will. Sounds weird? It should. This is one of the more ridiculous elements of the story, where it divulges into pulp. More specifically, pulp to sell newspapers from week to week. It's like when someone improvises a story before your eyes, but then people get way more invested than anticipated and you overcompensate for the ending. Here's a description of this torture chamber from the Persian's perspective of what we heard from inside the torture chamber itself. Don't go on, Eric. Isn't it very hot here? Says Christine from the other room. Oh yes, replied Eric's voice. The heat is quite unendurable. But what does this mean? The wall is quite hot. The wall is burning. I'll tell you, Christine, dear. It is because of the forest next door. Well, what has that to do with it? The forest? Why, didn't you see that it was an African forest? And the monster laughed so loudly and hideously that we could no longer distinguish Christine's beseeching cries. Raoul shouted and banged against the walls like a madman. Neither I nor the Persian could restrain him. But we heard nothing except the monster's laughter, and the monster himself can have heard nothing else. And then there was the sound of a body falling on the floor and being dragged along, and a door slammed, and then nothing, nothing more around us save the scorching silence of the tropics in the heart of an equatorial forest. In summary, it was a hexagonal room walled with unclimbable mirrors that expounded and multiplied the forest of the room indefinitely through its shifting illusions under the electric light like a tropical sun that heated more and more at will above us. The room was designed, as I said, to imitate a depthless African savanna forest, and designed furthermore to shift and rotate so as to seduce, and designed furthermore to shift and rotate so as to induce furious delirium. It was a ridiculous design, but hey, that's torture for you. Poor Raoul, despite us insisting that we need only remember that we are not in a purgatorial forest, but we are simply trapped in a little room, at first fell to despair and a temporary madness. I firmly believe that in adaptions of this book, Raoul could become an interesting rival and hero of this story, but as written, he is a bit of a typical good-looking dope, but a well-meaning one who doesn't want the best for Christine, ultimately, although like most melodramatic romantics, he seems very much more in love with love than Christine. But however legitimate is Ardul, let's free her from her psychological abuser first, then start talking about what they're going to do next. To his credit, this was an intense kind of torture for a brain not prepared to handle it, and he had a big day with his love being dragged away and all that. 
Eventually, Raoul regained his senses, briefly, and encouraged the Persian to find the all-important spring that would free us before we were roasted alive. But then he believed he had been walking through the forest for three days, looking for Christine. So, we're not going to be scoring any high scores for this little game. I myself tried finding shade from the trees, but they provided none. I condemned Raoul for being so foolish and losing sight of his reason, and then set about building our camp for our first night in the forest as we journeyed forth looking for King Solomon's mind. Ah, damn, I'm gone too! Ah, hello, Madness, my old friend. I don't remember you leaving. But we did have hope. You see, the Persian was there when a much younger Eric first invented this contraption many years ago. Today, we know it simply as a hall of mirrors, but Eric got bored with the initial concept and turned it into a torture chamber. So he was aware that there was a door to the room where from they heard Christine, and all that was to be done was to find a particular spot from their side that directly corroborated with a spring that could turn the door in accordance with Eric's system of pivots. In short, we needed to press a single point, no larger than the size of a pea, while our minds, also no larger than the size of a pea, were ringed like a towel damp with our own boiling sweat. Amazingly, night did fall in this manufactured forest, but the heat did not abate. So now we were looking for our pea in the burning dark. You know, Eric really is an angel of music, because he did start the fire even when we were just dancing in the dark. Eh? Except our dancing was death rose. We three idiots set up camp in our imaginary forest using our lanterns. Even the Persian feared that if we could not start a real fire, we would be helpless against the beasts of prey that would come for us in the forest. We heard a lion roar, and Raoul primed our pistols. I primed my proton pack. A second, closer roar, and we fired. He scathed no hide, of course, merely shattering a mirror. I, however, fired my highly focused and radially polarized protons in an attempt to trap the opera ghost once and for all. But of course, at this point, he was no spooky ghost, but all the scarier as a spooky psychopath. And my nuclear ray blasted across the mirrors until launching out of the catacombs to drop as a nuclear ball of death onto Paris. Ah, well, I'm sure it'll be fine. The Persian took my proton pack. Exhausted from searching for springs and fighting the voice of Eric morphed into lions and leopards, we awoke the next morning with more tricks and mirrors. We were dying, and so we kept at work to save our own hides, quite literally dying of heat, hunger, and most dreadfully, thirst. Imploring to Eric, who was clearly present working the torture chamber from adjacent rooms, changing the scene from forest to desert, and most cruelly, to a rainstorm's flow of water, when we licked the glass with dreams of cool running water, how we were rewarded with scolding rebuke. In this final change of scene, a tangible iron tree returned with one of Eric's trademark Punjab lassos hanging from it invitingly. I explained to the Persian, because he seemed so curious, that the Punjab lasso was a weapon unique to the Phantom of the Opera, described as a noose that can be thrown and used as a garrote. In essence, what the OG, not original gangster, but opera ghost, though I understand the mistake, can do with this weapon, is throw it over his victim and a higher object, and then hang them on the spot. The Persian couldn't avert his eyes from the noose. It seduced him, while Raoul put a bloated pistol to his temple. Oh, but I'm sure Eric's just misunderstood, Andrew Lloyd Webber, you're right. What was also misunderstood was the door out of our chamber, for the pea we had long searched for along the walls was far under our noses, in fact, just on the floor, under that dreadful lasso. The Persian seized Raoul's pistol and pushed the button, opening the trap door to freedom. We all escape, only to find that Eric's wine cellar is filled with a massive amount of gunpowder, or as the chapter is subtly called, barrels, barrels. 
it doesn't take long to work out the true meaning of the ultimatum given by Eric to Christine. Yes or no. If your answer is no, everybody will be dead and buried. Of course, it truly means that we will all be entombed under the ruins of the Paris Opera. Boy, old Maddie, you really should stay out of catacombs. Not much luck in there. And I'm starting to think that Jim Pawsby might not be behind this. So this is all for nothing! Nah, okay, I'll save the lady and kill the psychopath. Still demanding that Christine marry him, Eric gives her a choice between turning two knobs. No, not that knob, you fiend. One's a scorpion, one's a grasshopper. One will mean she accepts his marriage proposal, and the other means she rejects him. We make it to a room in which we can yell to them, telling Christine of the gunpowder. She realizes Eric's words that if she were to turn the grasshopper, meaning no, that the grasshopper would jump jolly high along with the human race within the opera, during a performance above no less, so potentially hundreds of lives are at stake. The Persian fears that, because Eric has left and not returned, that the scorpion promising yes is actually a quite cunning sting of a ruse, and will trigger the gunpowder as well. But then Eric returns, threatening to turn the grasshopper if neither are chosen immediately. Christine turns the scorpion, tragically choosing to marry Eric, and, as the Phantom promised, a bit less tragically, the gunpowder is drained away with a flood of water where Raoul, the Persian, and I stand. Except it doesn't stop flowing. Long after the gunpowder is diffused by the flood, it looks like we're next. Our thirst being vanquished not long before it looks like we may be. Hmm. We pass out in the water, hearing only between rather corny gurgles from us, cackling yells from Eric. Barrels. Barrels. Any barrels to sell? Weird flex, but okay, Eric. We awaken in beds, watched over by an angel and a devil. I woke up happy as a clam, about to sing a merry tune, but Eric whacked me over the head and I woke on the Persian's couch in his apartment. I'm no better than Hades. What in literal damnation? Then a curious thing happened that night. Eric came to the apartment, masked and with waxy white forehead struggling to speak as he was dying. Apparently, it was not our pleas for mercy that convinced him, or our gurgles, at the last minute to save us, but Christine's promise that she would do her darndest to be content in their marriage. As Eric puts it, he imagined her always as his dead wife, as if she would be the living dead with him, or live only with intent to kill herself. But, in that moment, he saw in her eyes such sincerity and imploration to save us, that he saw his living wife, she would truly endeavor, sincerely, to be happy with him. And so we were saved. Huzzah! Well, not Raoul. Apparently his brother went after us through the catacombs and stumbled into Eric's lake, dying and being discovered in the Seine. Whoops. It wasn't even Eric, he just fell. The young Viscount himself had to be kept away from Eric's bride at all times, who he clearly worried would change her mind by the slightest utterance, and kept him in what was called the Communist Dungeon. Not gonna lie, I was a little hurt that I was not considered for that cell, but moving on, I guess. He went to Christine, and he kissed her on the forehead. He was so elated that for the first time ever, he was permitted to kiss a person, and they did not run away. So elated, in fact, that it broke through his hatred. He wept, and she took his hand. Then t'was there that he realized how despicable and pitiable he had been, declaring himself but a poor dog ready to die for her. He gave her his blessing to marry Raoul, along with his plain gold wedding ring, where he asked her once more, without condition, if she would return to him after his death, to give back the ring so that he may be buried with it. 
And then he released them both, and they vanished into the night to live far away in untold realms of love. Eric told us all of this, left all of his notes and papers, including those by Christine's hand, and then he went into a cab back to the opera, where he died of a broken heart. Well, I guess he can afford Ubers, so it's good that he had that allowance, eh? You know, I like to think that in his act of kindness, he was able to find his heart first, before it broke. Thus died the monster, and then died the man. The man's body was discovered as the opera much later decided to bury the opera records, according to Leroux, and the narrator is certain that this body was that of Eric, not by the deformed death's head, as we all find ourselves sporting this look one day or another, but by the plain gold ring, returned to him by the fair hand of Christine. We end with the narrator insisting that the opera ghost should not be buried in some common grave, instead that he belongs in the archives of the National Academy of Music, resting forevermore as Don Juan Triumphant. What a yarn already! And we haven't even gotten a bit through the knit and grit of Eric's cheesy, and he is cheesy, character. For now, I think it's time to pick a melodramatic, gothic, psychologically captivating meat-or-meat substitute. A bit of a tall order. I'm thinking a dark meat for gothic, something skeletal, or dare I say, skinless. And I would say the dark meat to be turkey thighs are the ticket. Cooks like the Red Death and Hellfire. I'm choosing turkey for the melodrama, and psychologically captivating because I dare say turkeys are dramatic creatures, and they have a fair whop of symbolism to provoke some psychological discussion about the evil within ourselves, whether it's regarding the discussion of the president only pardoning one turkey on Thanksgiving rather than both of them, both of which committed no crime, much like Eric at first, or whether it's regarding the very notion of colonialism with its legacy of celebration and glorification. So yes, well-cooked dark meat, boneless turkey thighs are meat for the phantom of the opera plot, Gyotis. Now, if you know just that little bit more about culinary wonder than I, feel free to write in and tell me what's what, and suggest a better sandwich for this story. I'd like to see you try. I really would. Please help. Leroux's work has withstood the test of time and has helped to introduce the tortured image of a very dark anti-hero into literature. The Phantom is indeed dangerous, but also cultivated and accomplished. He feels passionately, is poetic, and even an accomplished composer. There are good and bad traits which define the individual, after all. Like Eric, a true hero is defined by how he or she reacts to others, even when faced with heartbreak and rejection. Not that I, of course, am for one second saying Eric was a hero. Alas, despite understanding him, the tragedy of his circumstances do not amount to an excuse for, well, homicide and kidnapping and emotional tormenting. But those circumstances also do not discount his moments of humanity. Jeez, I feel like I'm sentencing him here. Well, in for a penny. I hereby sentence you, Eric, not as a monster, not as a hero, but as a human being. Welcome to humanity. And I bid thee a fond adieu. Your sentence is death. On to cheese! Well, didn't I sentence him quickly? Now, first, before we get into an analysis, here's the epilogue of the Phantom of the Opera's tragic backstory. As I warned, it is tragic. So, Eric was born in a small town outside of Rouen, France. Born hideously deformed, he was the subject of horror for his family, and as a result, he runs away as a young boy and falls in with a band of gypsies, making his living as an attraction in freak shows, where he is known as the Living Dead. During his time with the tribe, Eric becomes a great illusionist, magician, and ventriloquist. His reputation for these skills and his unearthly singing voice spreads quickly, and one day a fur trader mentions him to the Shah of Persia. The Shah orders the Persian, as we know, 
to fetch Eric and bring him to the palace. The Shah in Shah commissions Eric, who proves himself a gifted architect, because he can do apparently everything, to construct an elaborate palace. The edifice is designed with so many trapdoors and secret rooms that not even the slightest whisper could be considered private. The design itself carries sound to a myriad of hidden locations, so that one never knew who might be listening. Handy trick. At some point, under the Shah's employment, Eric is also a political assassin, using a unique noose referred to as the Punjab Lasso. Ah, ah, it all comes full circle, you see. This is all taking place at Mazandaran. The Persian dwells on the vague horrors that have been existing there, rather than going in depth into the actual circumstances involved. The Shah, pleased with Eric's work, determines that no one else should have such a palace, and no one else should know his palace's secrets. And so, he rewards Eric by ordering that Eric should be blinded. Thinking that Eric could still make another palace even without his eyesight, the Shah takes his order further, ordering Eric's execution. It is only by the intervention of the Persian that Eric escapes. Eric then goes to Constantinople and is employed by its ruler, helping build certain edifices in the Yitz kiosk, amongst other things. However, he has to leave the city for the same reason he left Manzandaran. He knows too much! He also seems to have travelled to Southeast Asia, since he claims to have learned to breathe underwater using a hollow reed from the Tonkin pirates. You know, whatever, just give him all the skills and the feats. He's an overpowered D&D character at this point. By this time, Eric is tired of his nomadic life and wants to live like everybody else. For a time, he works as a contractor, building ordinary houses with ordinary bricks. But I'd imagine he gets bored. He eventually bids on a contract to help with the construction of the Palais Garnier, commonly known as the Paris Opera House. And during this construction, he's able to make his ultimate lair and his ultimate playground, where he can ultimately control and twist a very particular niche slice of humanity who he feels he's entitled to control to his whims. And you know the rest. The Phantom of the Opera, the Opera Ghost, or less climactically, Eric is the antagonist and eventual anti-hero of the novel, and a tragic, violent, and finally mysterious figure. Although the narrator asserts that Eric is a human being, he displays characteristics that suggest he might be more supernatural than purely human. His appearance as a skeleton covered in rotten skin, indeed, his undeath, is laboriously described to absurdism. Quote, He is extraordinarily thin, and his black coat hangs loosely off his skeletal frame. His eyes are so deep-set that you cannot make out his pupils, All you can see are two big black holes, as in a skull. His skin is stretched over, his bone structure like a drumhead. And it is not white, but an ugly yellow. His nose is almost non-existent when seen sideways, and this absence is a horrible thing to behold. As for his hair, it consists of no more than three or four long dark strands on his forehead and behind his ears. This is indeed quite the deformity but I still do not forgive his mother for refusing to let him kiss her, or to refusing to kiss him, only screaming and shoving masks in his face. But apparently, despite all this, he is simply a deformed human being, yet still possesses suitably absurd amazing abilities such as his extraordinary singing abilities and his capacity for ventriloquism, which allows him to project his voice anywhere he pleases, making it seem as though he's in various places at once, which is, depending how seriously you take it, which is, depending how seriously you want to take it, quite a fun device, actually. One that I have not quite seen in many a villain as of yet. Indeed, what could be more terrifying than hearing the monster you are hunting whisper in your ear from the empty dark? Although seen as a sublime, irresistible singer capable of expressing his emotions in heart-wrenching ways, 
Eric has grown up in an environment marked by rejection and manipulation, in particular because people are so horrified by his appearance, as I mentioned, including his mother. And this warps him into violence himself. Leroux greatly admired Victor Hugo, and I can see this in a way as Gaston's answer to Hugo's Jean Valjean, in that he's taken a character who has always been hated by the world, and instead of setting him on a path of redemption and ultimately salvation, he sets him upon a path of vengeance and ultimately madness. There's a reason I never really felt moved by the crossovers of Marvel, as fun as they are, because I've always been more intrigued by the secretive universe connecting literature, these writers who are constantly trying to surpass each other, build off each other, and influence each other. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen did touch on this concept quite literally, but I do wish someone did it again, but you know, better. That being said, I have only seen the movie. Don't hate me, comic book fans! Having apparently never been loved, he seems incapable of giving others love and freedom, his first and last resort being brutality in order to assert his authority. Killing Joseph Bouquet, taking part in various misdeeds at the opera, and trying to eliminate his friend the Persian and his rival Raoul even seem to bring him satisfaction, thus suggesting that he has a sociopathic appreciation for murder. At the same time, Eric also demonstrates a desire to change and live a normal life. Quote, I don't express myself like other people. I don't do anything like other people, but I am very tired of it. Tired of having a forest and a torture chamber in my home. Sick of living like a mountebank in a house full of tricks. Yes, I am sick and tired of it all. I want a nice, quiet apartment like everyone else, with ordinary doors and windows, and a proper wife. His brutal, possessive attitude toward Christine ceases once he realizes that she is a loving, honest being who feels sincere compassion for him. I am reminded of how the pirates of Penzance are convinced that though they can physically kidnap women to be their brides, they cannot steal a person's heart. This realization encourages him to change his ways, confirming his belief that he only needed to receive love instead of fear, hatred, and rejection to become a better person. I wish Eric learned a little bit more from this. He's almost there, though he still refuses to take any responsibility for his own actions, technically and even less responsibility for his own feelings. Though he makes what amends he can by saving what would be his last two victims and releasing Christine, he still doesn't regret being the monster that the world assumed he was, not realizing that in his cruel vengeance against the world, he gave validity to the scorn and cruelty done to him. Well, maybe not the whole building a building for someone as contracted and then that person trying to kill you. I think he's quite justified being miffed about that, especially that it happened twice. All of this ultimately, I think, accumulates into showing the difference between victims and survivors of tragedy, the difference between those who perpetuate the system and those who change it, breaking and discrediting the vicious cycle. However, I will ponder more on this. Eric dies of a broken heart at the end of the novel and is buried with the ring he had given Christine, as she did return to give it back as she promised. What a lovely lady! Less lovely man. Quote, Poor, poor, unhappy Eric. Should we pity him, or should we curse him? He simply longed to be someone, someone normal. But his hideous appearance would not allow it, and he had to hide his genius or squander it on tricks. Whereas, with an ordinary face, he would have risen to greatness among his fellow men. He had a big heart, large enough to embrace the entire world, but in the end, he had to confine himself to a dismal cellar. Yes, all in all, the Phantom of the Opera deserves our pity. I think when remembering Eric and taking into consideration his tragic circumstances turning him into this evil manifestation of death and music, 
it's important to remember that we need not forgive his many, many, many crimes. He committed them all, selfishly, mercilessly, and rather sadistically, not only taking life, but taking an incredible psychological toll on his victims who survived, including, nay, especially Christine. So when we do lament Eric's fate, I believe we should mourn the incredible talented soul he could have become if the world had just shown him a little kindness before this whole mess, and acknowledge that the person he was, the person he became, was someone who was a warped, tragic, evil man. So what kind of cheese is all this, you're asking? Well, that's a very good question. Cheese that will be used to represent Eric is Roquefort cheese. This French cheese, which takes approximately five months to age, became famous because it had struck the right chord with Emperor Charlemagne, so it's got a good history. It has very pungent flavors, is a pale, off-yellowish kind of color like Eric's skin, dotted with black, skull-like holes like Eric's unfortunate death's head, and has distinctive veins of blue mold, kind of an undead cheese that we can eat without dying. The veins have a sharp tang, like the cruelty and malice of Eric, but it's also slightly salty, so he's quite miffed and tragic in origin. And, well, it's edible. Ultimately, despite all of the horrors, this is not a poisonous cheese that will kill you. It's not a monster. It is an edible cheese that we can eat, representing the man that Eric ultimately is, despite everything. So yes, Rocky Four cheese. Quite scattershot, but I think it's a good answer. On to sources! Back to old times with old Maddie. The Persian kindly allowed me to stay in his apartment for a couple of days while I figured out where I was headed next after my first Parisian ordeal. Three weeks later, I bid the Persian adieu as he threw me to the curb. So unkind. Another betrayal. Though at least he was never at any point my best friend this time. Seek yotis, I'm learning. Down and out in Porsby's dystopian Paris, tearing down my wanted posters that were very crudely and rudely drawn, I pondered on the themes of my journey through the opera catacombs, the source of the Phantom of the Opera. The first theme was rebellion against society, is what I thought. The Phantom was always in rebellion against society. His obsession with revenge is spurred by religious anger born from the conviction that society had always rejected him, like so many who became unwilling outcasts. He eternalized that rejection by rejecting his own identity and putting on the persona of the Phantom in the belief that without the masquerade, society would take no notice of him. Which, when he did not put on a mask and tried working just like a normal contractor, like a normal man, he was, you know, nearly killed twice for just doing his job. So, kind of a justified, if ridiculously wild, leap to make, all in all. Next, life as a masquerade. This works into that. A writer does not set his tale of gothic horror within the milieu of an opera house without taking on themes associated with reality, illusion, and perception. The plot focuses on seemingly impossible feats, overwhelming drama, and misdirection. In this sense, the entire novel becomes an exercise in arguing that most of what is experienced in life is an illusion, a mask, to one degree or another. Perhaps even a fictional reality? Check it out, y'all. Podcast at That's Not Canon Productions. Shameless plug. Next theme, the duality of obsession. Obsession is not inherently good or evil. When directed in a positive way, obsession results in the art of Van Gogh and the music of Beethoven and the awesome novels of old Matty. 
When directed in a negative way, the result is serial killers and dragon-like billionaires like Donald Trump and name any villain of history from Napoleon to Hitler. Eric is not the only exemplar of this theme. While Eric's obsession clearly gets the better of him, consider the scene where the managers act obsessively to just to deny Eric his payment. It's clearly the saner, safer thing to do, simply to pay the opera ghost, but still they cling and pinch their pennies, clinging their coin tighter than human life. Hmm, that's pretty modern if you ask me, Kiltis. And then, of course, there is the novel's most iconic image of obsession, as portrayed on screen, stage, and in the novel itself, Christine's obsessive need to know what lies beneath the Phantom's mask. That key moment, I think, is the best moment of any part of the story. When the Phantom, when the Phantom is unmasked, and he must confront his obsession with his ultimate denial. And finally, anger. This scene when she takes the mask from his face is probably when he most blows up in the presence of her. As I read, it's a dark scene and he says some hideous things to her. There are many emotions pervasive throughout the plot. We see that anger and control through violence, not love, is in particular the cause of many of the conflicts. This includes Richard's confrontation with Madame Giri when he accuses her of stealing money, yelling and seizing her wrist, controlling. We also see this in Eric, obviously, who threatens to blow up the opera house if Christine does not marry him. Really controlling. It is also evident in our romantic hero, Raoul, especially when he accuses Christine of deception and hurls a bevy of insults relating to a perceived lack of love on Christine's part. In a big way, that is control. In the same way that people can love bomb to kind of make people dependent on love, he is trying to guilt her into loving him more by accusing her of not loving him enough. Though it may have been unintended by Leroux, as you may have noticed, the anger in the story is generally aimed towards women, and one woman in particular, Christine. Eric and Raoul's love and jealousy form the core of the plot, and Christine thus serves as a kind of proxy for their own desires and intentions. To me, this shows more than anything why the story is not about love, Android Lloyd Webber, but it's about anger and control, and I would wonder if that is more the reason than anything else that all of this anger is focused on a beautiful, kind, talented, gentle young woman like Christine, for she is a figure that frankly does deserve love from the world, and she is a figure that they both declare love towards, but she is in truth a lightning rod for their anger and obsession with control, because she represents an ideal that they feel that they're entitled to, and that they feel angry that is not theirs to possess. Very dark. And I think summarizing it up in a source is no easy task, especially with accompanying notes for final thoughts, which, by this point, I think we can all agree are well peppered throughout our adventure, Kyotis, and I see no reason to reiterate, to reiterate my final thoughts now. But I'll give these ingredients a go for our delicious word sandwich. Our source, to represent this defiance against society, this tragedy of society's facades, obsession and anger, I think this is most definitely a smoky, thus veiled, and spicy, fiery source, dark and controlled. I think this is well summarized, quite simply, in spicy red barbecue sauce, which has notes equal parts spicy, smoky, vinegary, showing the rebellion, facade, and angry obsession, respectively, but also just that little bit sweet, showing the ultimate humanity of all the characters, including Eric, except for the management, of course. So there we have it. For our Phantom of the Opera sandwich by Gaston Leroux and old Maddie Hannibal Butler, we have red wine, longan bread with Pinot Noir and wine, dark turkey thighs, Rochefort cheese, 
and spicy red barbecue sauce with, for salad flavour, spinach and black beans. Please don't ask me why. Well, Kyotis, this is our last old times with old Maddie for this entry. Eating my delicious word sandwich, I find myself fueled for another adventure. Having single-handedly defeated the Opera Ghost, I feel I learned a little something about the importance of atoning for one's mistakes and taking responsibility for how our actions impact the world. And even a little bit about French architecture, perhaps. So I think I will take it upon myself to capture that Jim Pawsby and force him to atone for his mistakes and make him take responsibility for his actions, especially for defiling the fair city of Paris. Haha! Haven't I learned a lot, Kyotis? Indeed, if I were a bear ruling Paris with that tiny, stupid iron fist, I would want to survey my kingdom from on high like a malevolent god. In the end, I may not have found Jim Pawsby in the Opera House, yet I think I wasn't too far off in thinking that he would have taken residence in some sort of demonic fortress, knowing, mayhaps, that I would come, and he needs to be prepared for me and my Bill Murray-like enthusiasm. Well, hark. Over there, my Kyotis, yonder, I spy a figure crawling like a cockroach along the peaks of Notre Dame. Tis some strange hunched beast. Why, can be no other than that Jim Pawsby in a stylish green sweater. Damn him and his impeccable style. Ooh, it really salts my vinegar. Well, Kyotis, until next time. I hope to see you again as I race to avoid Pawsby's guard hunting me and then take the hunt to the Devil Bear himself and to the very carefully detailed wonders and horrors of the Notre Dame de Paris. Farewell, my Kyotis. And now, Paris and Pawsby, have at thee! Huzzah! Let's talk about X, baby. Ah, uh, crappy relationships, the bane of our collective existence. But what do we learn from our mistakes? I'm relationship columnist Liz Bess. And I'm funny guy Tom Harris. Ghosts of Boyfriends Past will chat to guests about love gone wrong and take you on a journey through the funny, tragic, horrifying... And sometimes just plain bonkers stories about that crazy little thing called love. It's like a group therapy session. With two people completely unqualified to be leading it. New episodes drop fortnightly on Thursday, so join in to hear tales of heartbreak and woe and hopefully wind up a little wiser or drunker for it. That's not kind of Productions podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.